what in the world is a Gidget? It's a girl, a cuddling, befuddling teen, who set out to find her a man of her own and found seven. Seven young beachcombers with a single thought to enjoy life and love without working. Meet Kahuna, their leader, and Waikiki, Stinky, Lord Byron, Hotshot, Lover Boy, who tried to live up to his name, and Moondoggy, who was quite a guy. You'll get to meet them all when you see Columbia Pictures' Gidget, brought to the screen from the bestseller that proves a teenager can be delightfully juvenile without being delinquent. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. It's Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. As always, I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Alex. This week, we are surfing the waves going to the beach and hanging out with a young girl named Gidget from 1959. But before we get to the movie, we'd love to remind you about the Ticklish Business Patreon, which can be found at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Not only does your support help keep the lights on on our all-female-produced podcast, but you also get regular gifts, including DVDs, books, and Blu-rays, as well as exclusive interviews and bonus podcasts you can't hear anywhere else. You can visit patreon.com slash ticklishbiz to learn more. When I think summer movies, I think Gidget. I don't know about you guys, if there's a different movie that immediately pops into your head when you hear summer. You guys know I'm a big fan of any beach movie. And so Gidget set a template for those, both with the ridiculous nicknames for surfers, but also the hijink parties that always involve a girl being flung over a shoulder caveman style in the background. Gidget, it's part of the fabric of the beach movies that I love, even if it's not in. I don't think it is. I don't, maybe you guys would counter me on that, that I don't think of it in the same realm as your Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. Those are my general summer jam. Gidget is their cooler cousin. Right? No, you're totally on to something there because I saw Gidget before I saw the Frankie and Annette movies. And I think the only Frankie and Annette movie I've seen to this day is Beach Blanket Bingo, which I did not like. I know that there is a fond, warm heart for those movies and their patented brand of summer silliness, but I was just so confused by Buster Keaton, who might not have been in that one, but I might just be throwing in a bunch of hodgepodge ones. A whole subplot with undercover celebrities. I know some of the series has spies. It's just a little over the top. It was not the beach movie that I was thinking of. If anything, it did make me appreciate the moment in that thing you do when the band is filming what is obviously a Frankie and Annette movie, and they are Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack shooters. So I appreciated it a lot more. Gidget always symbolized the summer atmosphere. Samantha, what about you? Is this the movie that you think of when you think of summer? I'm going to continue to be contrarian here because I only just saw Gidget for the first time for this podcast. Yeah, I had obviously heard of, I'd really wanted to see it. I love Sandra Dee and I'm really familiar with a lot of her other movies. 
speaking of, I would say my big two beach movies of this era also don't star Annette Funicello and Frankie Avalon. But I would say my big two would be one's a little more dramatic. I love A Summer Place. Have I told you about how much I hate A Summer Place? Have we not had this We're going to have to talk about this at some point. <laughs> that one holds a close place to my heart. I really liked it. And then my other one would be my favorite Elvis movie, which is Girl Happy, which has very strong 60s beach vibes. You should listen to my Girl Happy episode that we did a couple years ago. <laughs> I'm the contrarian here. <laughs> I liked Girl Happy a lot more than I liked The Summer Place. If we ever do movies that just make us angry or that we just outright hated, that would probably be my contribution to that future topic idea. <laughs> it's to me it's like that perfect guilty pleasure movie i'm watching oh, it it's definitely guilty of something <laughs> i know i'm watching it knowing that i'm devouring pure soap opera but i love it and i love sandra d in it <laughs> it made me curious to watch this i was just thinking of a t-shirt that has a bar of soap that says pure soap opera on it gidget is an interesting movie in the sense that it did spark a franchise. Also, we can talk about this as we get into the movie. I feel that Gidget is far smarter and maybe a bit more provocative than it lets on. My hot take theory remains that that they get you with the summer and surfing and, oh, young girl. But it's really a far darker and deeper story about a lot of melodramatic topics that we will be talking about in a second. So note the finger wave that is happening on camera. Before we get into the weeds, this is directed by Paul Wenkos, who did several features and worked relatively long into his career into the 80s and 90s for television. It tells the story of a young girl named Francie Lawrence, played by Sandra Dee, who is not like her other friends. She is embarrassingly flat-chested, but also is not really interested in boys going on manhunts at the beach. And so she decides to take up surfing in the guise of, of learning how to surf. She ends up falling in love with a guy with the appropriate surfer name of Moondoggy, played by James Darren. There's all sorts of other things, including displaced veterans, use of meat as currency, and all sorts of amazing things that happen. But this was originally started as a book by Frederick Coner, which is based on his daughter, Kathy, who did become a girl surfer. It was written in 1957. It's got vaguely, you could say it's cheeky, or you could say it's incredibly like patronizing. But the book was called Gidget, The Little Girl with Big Ideas. I don't know how I feel about that title. I know how I feel about that title. <laughs> It not seems a fan. like a jeering dad, but to everyone else, not so much. <laughs> I'm trying to find out if the original novel holds a lot in common with the movie. It was written in first person based on the accounts of his daughter, who was a part of surf culture at Malibu Point. And it did have seven sequels, seven, including one that is called The Affairs of Gidget, Gidget in Love. Gidget Goes Parisienne, Gidget Goes New York, and one called Share Papa. I don't really know what the plot of that is, but it no. certainly sounds interesting. That one tells me that she flirts with her dad. That's what I get from that title. 
Am I correct, too, that Sandra D doesn't play Gidget in any of the other films? No, no. So we can talk about the sequels. I have the Gidget box set. So I have seen all of the Gidget movies. I've not seen Sally Field in the television show. In 1957, in Gidget Goes Hawaiian, I believe Deborah Wally was Gidget. And then in 63, when they did Gidget Goes to Rome, she was played by Cindy Carroll. So Sandra D was the biggest name that they got. James Darren was consistent. He did appear in all three of the features. One of the strengths of this, just to get into the Sandra D, especially rewatching, because I remember seeing this younger, I don't think as a teenager, but maybe in my age and wisdom, watching it now, the casting of her is so smart in all that it conveys physically even. And if we look at her, her real life as well, how problematic this was for her. She's very small and does look as young as she's meant to be. Because there's a lot about this about she's very young, she's very inexperienced. It's like hormones don't even hit her until August, right? We're watching a summer movie and in <laughs> June, she is a preteen. And in August, all of a sudden she's like, oh, I get it. She's not Minnesotan. That was mine. But there's something about that because she is both very adorable and a beautiful archetype of Western femininity, but also it's her smallness that makes you think, oh yeah, she kind of looks like a seventh grader. And her girlfriends, like the opening scene, there's so much in this movie that you could look at in terms of gender politics and the correctness of them or the implications of them. And this opening scene is her and her three best friends that she doesn't talk to again go to the beach and they go entirely on a manhunt because they're trying to get the attentions of these hot, slightly older surfer dudes. And these girls are stunning and they go and they walk in front of them. And the guys are just gross and lascivious and whistling, but then ignore them completely. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I've met 20-something men. You think they're ignoring these bikinied teenage girls? They're not. They are not, my friends. They are being so gross to these girls. Oh, there's so many. I love this movie. I want to emphasize that again and again. I love this movie. I love this franchise. But this is a movie where there's so many questionable tactics that happen. And that is just the beginning of it, where these girls are incredibly buxom. They're probably played by actresses who are about 23. Sandra D was not 23 at the time. That's one moment where you're just like, come on, guys. You would be all over these ladies. Seriously. She was, she was 17 and looks a little younger. This is definitely movie. Did you guys do this as well, where I looked up the ages of everyone? Yep. Because it has so much to do with Darren James is 23, Cliff Robertson, whom we could speak about forever, is 36. We could table the Cliff Robertson because there's so much there with Kahuna's arc that I find fascinating. But for Sandra D, they get there and even like her swimsuit, it looks like a toddler's swimsuit. It's not even just that she's wearing a one-piece She might as well have those inflatable floaty rings on her arms and be carrying a rubber ducky. They let you know that this is going to be a movie where you're going to be looking up age the minute the theme song plays, because I'm going to recite some lyrics from the Gidget theme song. She acts sort of teenage, just in between age, looks about four foot three. Although she's just small fry, just about so high, Gidget is the one for me. I don't know what in-between age is, but 
It just sounds But it's weird. not legal. Four foot three and in between age definitely leaves me to question some things about some things. That's a testament to Sandra D's performance because the movie tries to emphasize, or at least D tries to emphasize that she's not interested in boys per se. And she explains later on that they get, I forget what she says when she's describing dating to her mother. She just talks about how gross it is because there's these expectations and she has to act a certain way. And she's not really interested in that. When the girls realize the guys aren't into them on the beach, she's just like, let's just go somewhere else. Let's move on. Let's do something. So she's a character that feels adrift from both her own gender and boys, which there's been some really interesting discussions about Gidget as kind of like a queer film in terms of Gidget not really feeling like she connects with either boys or girls. And so surfing is this way of freedom. I don't know if I feel comfortable talking about experience that I don't have, but it's a movie that holds a lot of complexity, starting with the fact that Gidget just doesn't want to be the Annette Funicello in a beach movie. She just wants to surf and do something different and emphasize her time with fun summer hijinks. Meanwhile, her dad is throwing her at the boss's son and it's just like oh you want to date this guy don't you this will be a fun way to spend your time i definitely agree with you both i couldn't hype up sandra d's performance in this enough she really is perfect for it i couldn't imagine anybody else i do love that they also emphasize the eventual transformation that she goes through and it's pretty subtle because she always stays true to herself and her interests But you see her costumes start to change. She starts to dress a little more feminine. She wears her hair down more. By the end, she's full-on 1959 Sandra D in her gorgeous prime. And I wish that I had her outfits from that time. And it's so great to see a movie, while we're talking about those types of topics, it's such a nice thing to see any girl that's not interested in super feminine things in a movie or just boys a girl that has her own interests and hobbies that she wants to pick up. You're not going to see any other movie from this era talk about something like that. Yeah, as much as I make fun of the fact that those boys, I don't believe that those boys would ignore the hot girls. I did appreciate the fact that the boys were like, no, we're into surfing. There was an artificiality about the girls that they weren't finding appealing. They had a true connection with Gidget because she genuinely loved surfing as much as they did. And there was something nice there, because a lot of the stuff from, especially the early 50s, there's so much that's just about gender expectations, or there's no interrogating a deeper interest in things beyond just like, oh, this is how she will act, and this is how he will act, and it's fine if they don't have shared interest. And I liked in this that as implausible as it may seem, in terms of the general hormone horniness level, There was something so nice about people who, I will say, it was very believable surfer in all of the surfing shots, but they also were the most humongous boards. They do not have boards like that anymore. Surfers are like that. That is their thing. They are in the water for all day, every day. There's a passion to it and a meditative quality. And weirdly, the surfers in Gidget seem to have that same passion to them. I did really like them 
Then again, we do see them all with arm candy later. So I may be giving them much more benefit of a doubt than they've earned. It makes you wonder, how did that happen if they're ignoring these girls? How did they get those girls? At the dirty bars, because they're grown-ups. I would say it's really interesting that you bring up the historical context, because this movie was made right at the end of the 50s. And it's such a nice transition. You have the 50s where you're talking about men are supposed to do this and women are supposed to do that. And right at the end of the 50s, you have this movie where everything is challenged. It's like maybe women can surf with men. Maybe a woman doesn't have to look like that to get this man. It's funny because it's challenged in that movie way until the third act where everyone puts on their nicer clothes and assumes their real names and takes on the exact roles that their parents wanted them to do in very traditional ways, including the kahuna. But again, we well, we weren't quite to the 60s. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. It's all you gave us two and a half acts of playing with those things. And then they're like, let's not kid ourselves. It's 1959. Put on a suit, Moondoggy. In comparison to the other Sandra D movies of the year of 1959, Sandra D certainly played her fair share of young girls on the brink, for lack of a better word. And I always feel that Gidget is really an outlier in her career because it wasn't necessarily playing on her being this sweetheart girl with no depth who is just there to be the catalyst for melodrama she actually is the one with the agency who's leading this film who is creating the drama but also has motivations and ambitions and wants something we're not really sure what that is and at the end of the movie it might just be moondoggy all along but we know that she wants something learning how to serve is the thing that she's surprised she doesn't know because they emphasize that she's a bookworm, she's very smart, and she spent all her time learning how to be a good academic, but she doesn't really know how to be social or have fun or have friends or catch boys. So, so much of this is her desire to find independence for herself as a person, as opposed to what parents or other people want for her. The arc of identity throughout and independence must have been really refreshing, especially for young women watching this back then. Her relationship with her parents was blowing my mind. Her dad especially. This dad is taking, oh my gosh, he's taking Cher Papa to like a whole other level, right? The dad is so, oh, whatever baby wants, baby gets. He's frantic in his affection to her. And it's so countered what I feel like I normally saw at that time, which was a highly restricted, a highly policed energy, especially towards daughters. And this is a daughter who, again, is very small and very pretty. And as much as the overly effusive father is a little much for me, it was still such a nice differentiation from the tyrant who oversees things. She was granted a level of trust from her parents that blew my mind and seemed as fantasy as any of the rest of it. Sure, they eventually do ground her, kind of. Not really. Did the parents stand out to you in terms of both how much she, or maybe it was as a result of that, she told her mother everything. 
And I was like, there's actually some nice parenting things in here of if you are giving your kids leniency and trust, look how much more they're going to share with you than like how many movies did we see of the tyrant parents and then the daughters where I was just like sneaking out the windows at night and not telling them what they're doing. Gidget, just I'm saying, if you're a parent, maybe uh, maybe check this out. I love her parents. Arthur O'Connell, who most people might know from stuff like Picnic or Anatomy of a Murder, and Mary LaRoche, who plays Gidget's mom, who I know from being in the Living Doll episode of The Twilight Zone, as well as Anne Margaret's mom in Bye Bye Birdie. So funny that you mentioned that because I recognized her from the other episode of The Twilight Zone that she did with Keenan Wynn. <laughs> oh, that's right. She did do that one. Yes. They're both great because the 50s, we've seen parenthood falling into two categories. You're either the smothering parents, like from Rebel Without a Cause, or you're the overly moralistic, pat your kid, June Cleaver type of character from Leave it to Beaver. So there is no middle ground. I think that her parents really do show a good middle ground in that they are available to her when she wants to have these heart-to-hearts, but they also don't go too crazy when she starts. As much as I love Sandra D, she does have some moments where she goes a little ham in some of her performances, you know, where she's talking about having to buy a date or when she's talking about begging her dad for the surfboard. It's just a lot of Sandra D arm waving and twirling around and grabbing her head and it just becomes a little much. But her parents don't ever look at this. There's not a dramatic turn where they're concerned, they're worried. They're trying so hard to understand. That's what it is, is they want to at least understand what she's doing and be like, oh, that's fine. But we want to know what it is first. But they go looking for her in the third act and her mom says, the boys call her Gidget. They don't think there's anything weird in that. They're just like, oh, this is information that we've been given. This is how we can find her. Fun fact for you guys. I've called my mother Gidget since I was 11 and got taller than her. She signs our family email chains. She'll put love mom slash Gidget because that's literally all I call her. I called her that before I'd seen this as well. If I'd known how adorable Gidget was, I never would have blessed my mother with that. No, my mother's also adorable. I do think there is that teenage histrionic girl acting that was very big then. In the same way that I could look at Disney child acting now, there's a certain sort of, Aw, Mom, you just gotta see, I gotta get to the other girls and think blah, blah, blah. There's this thing that she does that I was like, uh, I don't even know if I can give her a mark for that because I feel like I've seen that so many times. The one other concept of the parents that I like is them just, what really give them the relaxing thought of all this is that for, again, the first over half of this, more than most of this summer, their daughter is neutered. All the other daughters are horn dogs, and their daughter's like, oh, boys are icky. Can I just get a surfboard, Pops? It's all I want. And they're like, yes, boys are icky. You can have a surfboard. Keep thinking boys are icky running full force into that can we because it's clear i keep dropping hints you guys i need to talk about cliff robertson as kahuna i just need it i need it for my soul i had completely forgotten and i do think it's because when i had initially seen this he was too old for me there's certainly a recognition of masculine handsomeness so he's like i said 36 he's literally twice her age 
and looks it, but is also this strapping male. I also recently saw this terrible Burt Reynolds movie, Malone, where Cliff Robertson plays the villain. And man, I wish that it had Gidget Cliff Robertson in my head while watching that, because it would have made it way funnier. Kahuna, the shape of him, and he's the de facto leader of these vagabond surfers, and he's the one that the rest of them are maybe just sort of surfing in the summer, between school, between getting jobs, but Kahuna lives this life. He has all these trinkets from other islands, and he's just roaming the world. Sure, he was in the war, but he's not going to talk about it. There's something about him that's just, I'm like, why are we looking at Moondoggy? Bring back that tortured man! Oh my goodness! He has all of these things, and yet what really impresses me in this is, from the beginning, every single time they're together, you fully believe that he sees her as a kid, and there is not ever going to be a crossing of line. There's never a worry in my head that Kahuna is actually going to paw at Gidget. You mean until the third act, right? But even even, even then, then yeah. they, they handle that so well. He is inches from fully winking at the camera to let you know that he is in on it. Because her whole thing, right, at the end, she's using him to make Moondoggy jealous because the other idiot didn't work to make him jealous. He gets that immediately. And then he literally tries to scare her straight. He's like, oh, okay. Well, obviously I'm not going to hook up with you because you're an infant and I am no share papa. And so I'm going to turn the lights down and lean in and be like this, like this. He's daring her. Even through all of that, that's a fine line. There are many people, many men I can see that would have still had a weird... I'm teaching you a lesson but I would teach you a lesson. And Cliff Robertson as Kahuna, I felt, was so genuinely protective of her the whole time. I'm going to try very hard not to burst out laughing when I say all of this, because I think Drea just dropped 13 things I want put on a t-shirt or a notebook. I don't know. This is the movie that made me obsessed with Cliff Robertson. I'm still very upset that he is deceased and is no longer with us. I was so disappointed when my brother showed me Spider-Man after I watched this movie because I was like, oh, Cliff Robertson said a Spider-Man movie. And I was like, yes, let's watch this. My brother likes these movies. I watched the first one, Tobey Maguire, by the way, in case you're wondering which Spider-Man. And I was like, that's not Cliff Robertson. (laughs) That's not him. No. And I was very upset. Cliff Robertson did not look like 1959 when he was Uncle Ben in the first Spider-Man. I became very obsessed with his movies and I can tell you that he did play these kind of roles for a little bit in the 1950s into the 60s. There's a movie he made called The Girl Most Likely with Jane Powell, which is a remake of a Ginger Rogers film. And he spends the entire movie for no reason without a shirt on, but just a sweater tied over his shoulders. There's a reason. There's there's a a reason. reason For us, I was more concerned that the script just was like, we're going to give you a sweater, but nothing else underneath it. Just put the sweater over the shoulders. Just make it a bit. I just want to say I could not stop thinking of Cliff Robertson in that movie when I was watching this because I had seen that first. And that was my point of comparison because really the only other Cliff Robertson movies I had seen before this were 
the girl most likely and Sunday in New York. And I'm like, well, it's not really Sunday in New York, Robertson. So I just couldn't get the girl most likely out of my head. I love that movie, by the way. It's also not Three Days of the Condor, Cliff Robertson, which again is another Cliff Robertson movie that everybody should see. He does not look like this, but it's still really good. He's really good. It's weird that your guys' frame of reference are not the same as mine. Burt Reynolds Malone. <laughs> so strange. Now I feel like I need to watch that movie, Drea. You, you, so. you do not, my friend. You uh, are good. Um, one of those episodes where we find that we all share that little point in the Venn diagram. People who want to see Cliff Robertson take off his shirt. Always. To go back to Drea's point, Kahuna is that character. Yeah, remember those halcyon days when you could be a vagabond and just build a multi-room hut on a beach on a public beach and that was okay because you looked hunky in your weird high-waisted pants he's the vagabond that it makes it it's a lifestyle choice he's not homeless he's homeless by definition of the fact that he's not living on the grid he's not homeless he has that hut he made you're right at the very end Until he's tearing down the hut, it hadn't fully processed in my brain. Oh, yes, indeed. This man lives on a public beach in a shack that he built from leaves? Some wood. Some some thatching that apparently is just available in this town. Available and it's okay to leave it behind when you go. Yes, exactly. He comes out. He's in this weird, I call it brown face. He's very tan. And everything is, let him dramatically take his shirt off. The minute he meets Francie, he's like, come into my hut. And he takes the shirt off and they're having this discussion. I love that Kahuna really is the character. And I've watched this movie with several friends. And they've all said the same thing, which is, this is the guy that Francie should be with, right? Yes, he has no ambition, but he has ambition. This distinction, I think, between Moondoggy who feels very immature by comparison because he's age appropriate, of course, to Francie. But there's this weird juxtaposition or empathy with Kahuna that a lot of people that watch this, maybe because we've been conditioned to so many May-December romances in film or something, or maybe it's because Francie is so determined. But it always, always, anytime I show friends this, they always say, well, Kahuna's the better fit because he wants good things for her. He encourages her, he supports her. And Moondoggy's always tearing her down. He's always making comments. It's only when she almost drowns that he's singing the theme song to her and is taking care of her. But even then, Kahuna shows up and she's like, oh, hey, I'm alive again. It's it's a really weird thing. This is one of those movies where I will have so many people say the wrong guy wins. The wrong guy wins this movie. I disagree. (laughs) I obviously think that Kahuna's the better man. But Francie is a child, and so for me, it makes sense. Yeah, she's also immature. She should be with the guy who's immature. She's not going to marry Moondog. I mean, she might. I haven't seen all these seven other films. As she I does. She does. Of yes. course she does. So then they can grow and mature together. I appreciated that there's a better man here, but he's not the better man for her because he's a grown man. He literally went through a war. He's a pilot. He's twice her age. No part of me was they'd get together. Kahuna's heart belonged to his bird. The bird! Oh my god, the bird that died and he had the big... You guys, he's got everything. He's sensitive. He's trained. He's hot with his shirt off. 
My favorite too is because Cliff Robertson actually surfed. There's this one shot that is so pointed of him with a stogie in his mouth and this ridiculous sun hat on. You know, most of those, they're far enough out into the surf that they're backlit. You can't see the stunt person's face. It's very clearly not Sandra D on the board when you're getting like their full shot. They do like four times where they cut to them all surfing. And they've done things which surfers never do, which is all eight of them have caught the same wave. And they're all surfing the same wave in, like the Rockettes, spaced out evenly every two feet. And you're like, that's, what? That is not, okay. But the best part about that was that, because Cliff Robertson's actually doing one of them, and it's the closest the camera gets to him. And he's like, I'm going to have a cigar in my mouth. Really? I am. If you want me to serve, I'm going to have a cigar in my mouth. Just trust me. It's going to look awesome. It does. It shouldn't. It smells from here, but it does look awesome. He lived that life and was that guy. Also, if he had ever, if there had even been a small, if he had given like forlorn, oh, if only you were a little older, Gidget, I'd be like, absolute no. No. End it. Shut it down. Happy with those drawn lines. The process shots are hilarious in this movie. It's part of the joy of this film. Knowing that they are probably just standing on a box, leaning left to right. Kristen, they're all standing on beds with another girl shaking the bed for them. We know that. (laughs) There's that. Sandra D, her mother absolutely refused to allow her to do any of the swimming shoots in the ocean. So anytime you see her in the water, it is obviously the studio tank. Or there is a great guy who was so kind enough to put on her bathing suit and a blonde wig. And you can obviously tell it is a man who has gained 100 pounds and has got muscles and is super stocky clomping into the water in her bathing suit. They had one stunt girl for her the very first time she runs in. It's noticeable and it's terrible. But again, because Sandra D is so small and we can also speak about that i'm hesitant to bring up her size so many times when she very famously struggled with anorexia her entire life and looking at this film and thinking of how much her size added to the performance to how we conceive of gidget it made me bummed out for that reality and i definitely had flashes of as ridiculously fawning as the parents were on screen, I had these small moments of, oh, I hope Sandra D was taking in all that doting energy, even fictionally, because it was so lacking in her real life. She had such a sad, sad, and personal stress existence. I'm like, oh, I wish she was carefree, and all she wanted to do was worry about was learning how to surf. Lover, but heartbreaking. If people want a nice glimpse into Sandra D's life, I recommend people read Dodd Darren, which is her son's book, Dream Lovers, about her relationship with Bobby Darren. Sandra D had a very sad, sad story, but it's a really interesting look into the psychology of who she was as a person and her relationship with her family and her relationship to Hollywood. Sandra D is definitely one of those actresses that, much like Haley Mills, struggled once she became an adult woman, especially in the 50s and 60s. They say what women's shelf life back then was 30. And then after that, you were pretty much done. But Sandra D really struggled because she did look young for a significant amount of time. 
the ravages of anorexia and, and the issues that she had, the end of her life, she was making movies for AIP, which is the really low budget horror movie market. And I think that the emphasis was more that it was a horror movie. There was nudity, not from her, but that that, that was going to be in the offering. They use a body double or something. It's a really sad turn of events. She's so good and bright-eyed, but it is hard to ignore that once you know that she was struggling with an eating disorder because she spends so much of the time with bare shoulders and she's very, very small and flat-chested. And it's like watching Vera Ellen in a lot of her movies too, who also struggled with body issues. Once you know, you know, and it becomes very hard to notice that. She has really good chemistry with both James Darren and Cliff Robertson. I tend to be kahuna forever. James Darren does really try as the the dude who is the guy for her. It's just hard to conjure up things that I could say about him because my mind is just on Cliff Robertson. I don't know if there's anything I could say. I'll be the one to throw in because I will say Please, that yes. I have never seen a James Darren movie before this, but he is very much my type. It's one of those <laughs> I should have, but didn't. And now I'm like, whoa, okay. The one thing that I do want to mention about him is there are songs in this that he sings. He's the only one. He's the only one that sings in this movie. And the songs are very random. But I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. I just listen to him and his voice is so good. Makes me want to go out and buy a James Darren record if they still exist. He's great. I will also, again, be the contrarian here and say, I love Cliff Robertson. I love his other works. I don't love him in this. (sighs) James Darren used to tour with Frankie Avalon. And some of the other well, okay, it's funny that you bring that up because I live near Philly and all of those 60s crooning idols, I believe him, Frankie Avalon, and Fabian all live in Philly. So I'm very close to James Darren right now. I want to say that there was a time, I don't know, obviously it was pre-COVID, where they would all three of them toured together. Yes. Because they, they came to my town and I didn't get to go, and I was I'm still kicking myself over it. I would have loved to have heard Frankie Avalon sing Beauty School Dropout, but regardless, they need to get back into it. Well, now that I'm a James Darren fan and I know that he lives so close to me, I can't not think about it. Use your powers to get him on the podcast. We would love to ask him digit questions. I'll go knock on his door. Yes, I believe he's the only one left. I would not. I would not (laughs) knock on his door myself. I'm so glad you brought up the songs, though, because... They are so out of left field. It's not a musical. It's not a jukebox musical. And yet there's one character who sings and that it's not the girl. That it's not, do you know what I mean? That it's not this Disney princess moment of her. Like, I was in shock when he started singing to her because I was like, oh, is he singing along to the radio? Because this is the theme song we heard at the beginning. Because the first song he sings is the Gidget theme song. And I was like, Why does he know the words to a song about her name? It was blowing my mind. It was like, oh, this is very meta. The levels of narrative play that are happening here. At first, I wasn't sure if she could hear him singing either. I was like, what is happening? And then he sings again. But my favorite was in when I looked it up and that he hadn't sung before. And there had been this big worry that he was going to be able to pull off these songs. 
And the reason that stood out to me was because I was like, oh, neither of those songs seemed planned to me. They both seemed things like, hey, why don't we, let's just do a take where he's singing. Because they were so random. So I'm like, oh, they planned this from the beginning. They knew there'd just be the one person singing. And I can tell you that the musical elements became bigger in, especially in Gigi Goes Hawaiian, because James Darren had become a successful singer by that point. I noticed the same thing that Drea did, and that really stood out to me too. I was like, why would you be worried if this guy can pull off these songs when these songs feel like they're not even supposed to be in the movie? (laughs) Again, I don't care. I love his voice. I could just rewind and watch those two scenes over and over. That's the intended effect. It was supposed to make all of the late 50s teens and tweens sigh and go buy his records. That worked. They needed to give something to up his appeal in comparison to Cliff Robertson as well. If Cliff Robertson could sing like that, it would be a little more of a toss-up. Oh my god, can you imagine him in his shack (laughs) with his stogie singing to his bird? I mean, I can. I can imagine and I have. That's the thing that I don't love about Cliff Robertson in this. He's too edgy. He just seems a little bit like a nice, nice quotation marks guy. People don't understand me. Even though you guys did bring up that he never really was going for Gidget, I feel like after Moondoggy wins the love triangle that kind of never existed, he's still really despondent about it and makes those life changes after that happened. And you have that, at least I had that sense of like, he wishes that he had her towards the end. Girl, you're crazy. As he's tearing he down his hut, he's just no. so edgy, like, eh, screw this, tearing- I'm out of here. No, he's tearing down his hut. He has a full arc, which is shocking in this. I've seen so many of these movies where not even the lead character has an arc. Kahuna has a full arc of this person who's processing trauma and grief from the war. He's incapable of speaking about it. He's lost himself in the surf. He has this whole fantasy he's constructed because he needs all these younger guys to look up to them. And then when he finally, what his arc is, has nothing to do with the woman. It's him coming to terms with things, grieving his bird, which represents all the other loss he's gone through, and then going back to the real world. And he's upset because giving up this path of his life is a big emotional beat, but it has nothing to do with like, oh, I've lost the woman it's oh i'm going back into the real world and i thought i didn't have to but you do have to live in the real world and i have to make smart choices and part of the smart choices he made was he not only never puts her at risk and is conscious of it the whole time he also pushes moon doggy towards going for her he's aware of it how dare you there's no disparaging kahuna on my watch samantha ellis how dare you? I will say that by the time we get to Gidget Goes to Rome in 63, they pretty much redo the plot of this movie, only there is an older man who's played by, I believe it's Cesare De Nova, because she's in Rome, so we got to get an Italian guy. The emphasis is that, that it's actually a love triangle. The older guy is definitely into her. So but I'm how old saying, is she by then? She's, she's 18. She's only eight. Okay, well, gross. Yeah, she's, she's still, yeah, it's still. In this like, one, it. there's a nice delineation of age that stayed consistent. It's admirable, the, the through line that they had for Kahuna, because I can imagine 
as someone who has seen the Frankie and Annette movies, many versions where not a single character is given that kind of arc or depth or the idea of processing grief. What I love about this movie, and it's something that is the 60s, would usher in more of the overt sex comedy to the beach movies and the emphasis on hooking up and everything. This movie does that very, very, very skillfully. So much so that if you are not Kristen and you're not looking at this as some sort of weird allegory, you will not notice it at all. But my big deal is that I believe Gidget is really an allegory about sexuality. Because if you think about it, she comes up with this thing that she wants to do. She wants to serve. But there are numerous sequences where you're sitting there, at least I'm sitting there, and I'm saying, is it sexual? It feels sexual. Case in point, the guy who takes her out to serve for the first time, he gets on top of her on the board. She's obviously a little uncomfortable by it. Moondoggy has to save her. But the guy just slyly says to Moondoggy, oh, we were just about to go in deeper. And you're like, wait, is it sexual? Because it feels sexual. Girl, there's no part of that that's subtle. That character's name is literally Loverboy. Loverboy, exactly. (laughs) And then the initiation sequence is a bunch of guys around her while she's in the water and they're shoving her head under for her to collect kelp as a means of getting initiated into the group and then she almost drowns and she has to be saved. So my whole theory is that Yagic is really some sort of weird virginity loss story. She goes through some trials. That's my weird theory of the episode. I don't know if I'll agree with that theory because I think that they give extenuating circumstances. Okay. Although there is certainly, with all of these things, because the arc of what she's doing as she's developing her hormones and becoming a woman and whatever, that's all there. The initiation that you brought up was actually something I appreciated because there's that expected beat where Gidget's harmed and then everyone who's been begrudging of her is concerned about her Moondoggy sees her differently. Kahuna sees her. They're all like, oh no, we actually like Gidget. She has this near drowning and then is also then ill for a while and stays away from the beach. The thing that I liked most about that was that they set it up that the way that she was injured was not a result of something she did as a surfer. And I was actually very grateful because they could have easily been like, oh, she's inexperienced. She's not good at what she does. She's over her head. And instead, the instigating incident is, oh no, she was literally being pushed under the water by these jerks. It was such a small differentiation. But the idea of if that whole beat had happened because she had screwed up on a surfboard, it would take away the value of her being competent and strong and learning something. So I didn't have a sexual read on it. I was more grateful that They were not trying to disempower her just to get to this emotional beat. Definitely. And I do love the third act, which is the age-old way to end your film, which is show a girl that she doesn't want to sleep with you as a means of showing her that she doesn't want to sleep with you. So remember those halcyon days when you could be a grown man and try to teach a young girl a lesson by vaguely hitting on her as a means of showing her that she does not want to be hit on? To go back to my theory about this as some sort of allegory, the third act is her being in a situation where it's like, okay, you can do this now. And she's like, nope, actually hard pass. I'm going to move on. Thankfully, Kahuna is not a horrible human being and it's all for show. It does, if anything, faking out 
high school girl does force him to get a job and get rid of the vagabond lifestyle, figure something out. Unfortunately, he never comes back, though, which makes me sad. I want to know it what he's doing. Yeah. When you get to that point and you're realizing everyone you are hanging out with is a teenager and you're a grown ass man, then yeah, you're going to go get your pilot's license renewed. That's what's going to happen. Gidget was a successful franchise. There were two sequels in 61, Gidget Goes Hawaiian, Gidget Goes to Rome in 1963. Both of them, if memory serves, I've not seen them, even though I own both of them. It was more a means of letting James Darren sing. He sings in Italian in Gidget Goes to Rome in case Samantha is interested. But neither one's really good. They're very much in the vein more like sitcom plots than anything else. It did allow for an incredibly successful TV series with Sally Field that went on for a good long while. There were also several telemovies, including Gidget Grows Up and Gidget Gets Married. Spoiler alert. Her and Moondoggy did end up together. And there was a very short-lived series called The New Gidget, which ran for two seasons in the late 80s. But my personal favorite Gidget factoid about where this franchise went is that in the year 2000, Francis Ford Coppola staged a musical adaptation of Gidget with a cast of students from the Orange County High School for the Arts, which he called... A Catcher in the Rye for Girls. I don't know what happened to this, but I want it to exist. That is a fever dream that Kahuna had in his beach hut. (laughs) He got a little too much sun. And there was a stage play in 2007 that did not seem to go anywhere. I want the Gidget universe to come back. I want it. I want more ways to insert this girl surfer into society especially now i don't know what kids are doing these days but i don't know if kids are surfing in as high numbers especially girls i feel like you're forgetting the kate bosworth vehicle blue crush oh that's right the, the big problem with gidget as a concept now there's a million things that you would have to circumnavigate first off there's no girl surfer right you're just a surfer so anything that's trying to sort of separate or divide or making it like oh how novel that this girl wants to get in the water it's a big hurdle it would just need to be like oh yeah i've started this new thing and it happens to be surfing is this where i also share the weird factoid that blue crush starred kate bosworth kate bosworth played sandra d in the biopic beyond the sea which we don't need to talk about considering who made it Fun, circular fact. It's all related. I had never thought of that. Yes. The the strange Bobby Darren adjacent tie that is Kate Bosworth. That's so crazy. It's no world. What we have, though, is hot girl summer. What we need is hot Gidget summer. Amen. Oh, my gosh. I want that slapped over everything now. Hot Gidget summer. That's a note to go out on. Do we have any other final thoughts? Anything we want to throw out before we wrap up Gidget? This is a fun one. Obviously, I think a lot of people will have already seen it, but revisit it. If this sounds like something you want your eyeballs on again, it does not disappoint. I also want to throw out that this is one of several films in the new TCM book on summer movies written by John Malahi. 
shameless plug. I have the book. It's a lot of fun to read. So if you're looking for some movies to watch to accompany your reading about movies from the summer, Gidget is a great starting point and you should check out TCM's new book. This was a first watch for me, but really anyone who wants to make that transition from other 60s beach movies into this, like I did, if you want to go the wrong way about it. This is a perfect movie that embodies summer, and it's definitely the one you should watch this time of year, especially if you like Sandra D, like I do. Listeners, send us your thoughts on James Darren singing in Italian, Sandra D, whether Kahuna ever did get that airplane back up in the sky, you can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com or tweet them to us at ticklish underscore biz, and we will read them on the next episode. But you can always follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, including Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Audible. If you're on Apple Podcasts, help us out and leave us a rating and a review. Those help a lot. We are also on Instagram and our official website is journeysandclassicfilm.com where we have reviews, interviews, videos, all sorts of things up there. You can always find me on social media on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Dre Clark, where are you on the interwebs and what other projects do you have? I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark and I also co-host a contemporary film podcast which is now titled Maximum Film. Samantha Ellis, what about you? You can find my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. And my Twitter is classicfilmgeek. I am also now on TikTok too at classicfilmgeek with some old movie stuff. And so is Ticklish Biz. We are on the TikTok. I cannot tell you what our link is because I didn't start it, but search for us. You will find us. I'm still trying to figure out what TikTok is because I am not the target demographic for it. And if you want to support us with your money and get some really fun things, including free movies, pins, all sorts of bonus shows and exclusive content, you can head over to patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We do all sorts of other things on there as well. And we are hoping to start up some more fun things over the summer. So stay tuned for that. But we will be back next time. Till then.